You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is David Leach from ITK Services. How are you, David? Well, I'm well, thanks, Giles, and enjoying the second night of the, having doubled the uh, rooftop solar on my house and uh, looking forward <laughs> to most, most of corporate Australia uh, uh, starting to follow suit. Well, exactly. Yes. Well, having doubled the output of the solar on your roof, I'm sure there's one coal-fired power generator which is feeling sort of sorrier for itself um, this week. Um, the latest AEMO quarterly report shows that um, coal output in New South Wales hit a record low in the third qu- in the third quarter. So um, Matt Keane's prediction that they could be all out the door by 2030 might, might just come true. I think uh, things are certainly looking that way. Uh, one of, there's always lots to read in the uh, AEMO quarterly energy dynamics. Uh, I must say I've moved on to already looking into even more interesting October. But uh, one of the things I did uh, quickly notice looking at that was that uh, gas has only set the price, I think, around the NEM about 13 or 14% of the time. Renewables are starting to set the price a little bit at the moment, like wind and solar, particularly in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but I mean the fact that gas is gas is down to twenty percent or fifteen percent. I mean, you know, the investment banking world thinks that gas sets the price, but it doesn't most of the time. And and you know, gas outputs down generally. Yeah, and the coal plants are having to deal with some um, very steep duck curves of, as we've talked um, before, and just the pressure on ramping, uh, etc. That's um, pretty hard for them to manage. Um, but also interesting, I think you pointed out this uh, this week that um, prices negative in Victoria in the month of October, but um, in the um, in the previous two months, I think the average price over the five hours in the middle of the day was. One cent per kilowatt for megawatt hour, so it's um, not big well, returns for anyone. Well, there are clearly some big transmission issues going on somehow or other in the system at the moment. It's a very regular feature uh, during October that the price in Victoria, South Australia, Tasmania uh, is way less than the price in New South Wales and Queensland, and and transfers between Victoria and New South Wales are only running at about a quarter of the theoretical limit a lot of the time. So there's clearly something going on there, which I haven't got to the bottom of just yet. Well, we mentioned coal um, output and it's down to its record low. Now, the coal industry's traditionally big customers have been the um, smelters and the refineries and things like that. But over the last week or so, we've learned that most of these are going renewables, including a really big announcement from Rio Tinto announcing that it's going to order, well, at least seven gigawatts of wind and solar. Five gigawatts of that's going to be for the Boyne Island smelter in uh, Gladstone in Queensland um, and the Tamago smelter in New South Wales, which had kind of been flagged before. Another gigawatt to create a new wind and solar grid for its iron ore mines and possibly green steel manufacturing in the Pilbara, and then another gigawatt on top of that as it seeks to electrify 
its trains and all its heavy transport at the mines, really quite a rapid transformation. I mean, a whole political discussion is discussed about how wind and solar can't do anything. Keith Pitt was up there today saying, well, guess what? Solar doesn't shine at night. Well, yeah, we know that. But um, all the main business groups are... um, are obviously finding ways uh, or understand that wind and solar with a bit of firming can actually provide cheaper and obviously cleaner power. And that's going to make their business competitive into the future, particularly with the prospect of carbon tariffs. Well, yes. So just to uh, make that point that uh, Boyne Island and Tomago between them are uh, about 1,800 megawatts of pretty much uh, flat power, you know, and that's 7 8% of the total Australian load. And, of course, West Tomago could be replaced under the New South Wales scheme or, or done in one way or another if it wanted to. But uh, Boyne Island would be certainly a big increment for Queensland. And it would also, you know, bring forward or make more certain the closure of the Gladstone Power Station, which I think has been on the cards for some time anyway, around 2028 or 2029. So it's not just New South Wales. Uh, but another thing that happens from the closure of Gladstone is it will free up a lot of transmission uh, that then North Queensland renewables can have to not only go into Gladstone, and there's more there besides the Boyne Island smelter, but to start travelling further south. So the, if uh, Queensland manages this properly uh, and power link up there, then uh, it's going to be uh, quite a big opportunity, I think, to, to for us to exploit a, a great asset. But I think the other thing, there are two other things to note about that uh, Rio announcement. Uh, The first one is uh, that really for the whole mining sector, and this point's been made by uh, the people at BNEF and a lot of other people, it's the, the, the transformation offers terrific opportunities. It's not just about repowering our, our own assets, but it's about, it's about exports, if you want to talk about exports of hydrogen, but it's also about uh, the mining of uh, copper, of lithium, uh, and and perhaps the opportunity to, to, that that can um, rare earth uh, lioness I've mentioned before that go into electric motor magnets are going to be incredibly uh, popular and useful. Uh, the, and, and and Linus has some of the few assets outside of China. You, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for the resources sector there. And the resources sector are some of the smartest people in Australia, make the most money, and will certainly know how to exploit it. So that's point two, Giles. And whilst I'm finishing on this burst, the other thing for anyone that looks at uh, Rio's presentation, and it's kind of a mea culpa presentation to apologise for, for, for the, you know, the, the environmental damage they've done. And it's very slow and very late, but they do seem to be getting it now. Uh, and, and Rio knows a lot about China. And there's some great slides in there about the, in, in their presentation about what's going on in China at the moment. Uh, you know, some areas are paying uh, aluminium prices for power for aluminium in China of like 600 renminbi. Well, that's over $100 uh, uh, a ton, uh, a megawatt hour for electricity. And just generally a lot of restrictions. And what, you know, I think over time, what we're going to find is this investment uh, by China in coal fired electricity is going to be turn out to be an absolutely colossally bad decision. You know, they're an energy uh, intensive economy by, the, by far the world's most and biggest producer of energy intensive goods. And they're trying to do it all with coal-fired electricity, which has no future. 
And probably, Giles, that's an opportunity uh, for us now to talk about uh, gas as the is going to, the next thing coming up on the radar. Well, yes, but look, I'd just like to put in my two cents worth about some of these developments too. I mean, as you mentioned, um, the Rio Tinto presentation is actually quite fascinating for the China increase in um, electricity prices, the doubling in some provinces. So that's opened up the opportunity for Australia to seize the momentum in green manufacturing. So you're seeing that. You're seeing renew, rejuvenation, basically, of Boyne Island and Tamago, both of which have been discussed as would they close down or not. Well, no, they're going to continue now, but with renewable energy. We're seeing Sun Metals up in the northern um, Queensland, the second biggest consumer in Queensland, going 100% renewable. We've got the Olympic Dam project in South Australia with BHP going 50% renewable, signing up to the new hybrid, wind-solar hybrid um, being built by Iberdrola. And, of course, the Rio Tinto um, presentation just talks about the huge opportunities for copper, both with electric vehicles and also just in building renewables, um, four times as much copper needed uh, both for cars over um, electric cars over ice and um, petrol and diesel engines and in wind and solar farms over traditional thermal then you've got Andrew Forrest talking about green steel opportunities he's talking about manufacturing solar he's talking about manufacturing electrolyzers in Queensland now look we're probably still some way to see that those things actually eventuate but that's the thinking that's now going on um, amongst Australian industry and that's that's where it comes down to renewable jobs and not just about sort of building wind and solar farms and operating them. It's actually because the renewables allow more industries to occur and to flourish in Australia, and that guarantees the jobs. Well, I think that's exactly right. Uh, uh, you know, the jobs are always never going to be in, in the actual manufacturing, probably to the same extent. You know, manufacturing's done a lot with robotics. So the jobs are in design uh, and in selling products and in marketing them and in uh, professional services. You know, that, that's where the jobs in Australia really are. In healthcare is a by far bigger employer uh, than, than the mining sector by, you know, I, I can't remember, but it's nearly... 10 times as big or something like that maybe more uh, uh, the other thing if you you know if you look at it from the uh, economy's point of view uh, is that we are going to lose the exports of coal and 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 gas and Australia is the third largest after um, Saudi Arabia and after Indonesia I think it is uh, world's third largest exporter of thermal energy now the big hope is that we can replace that with hydrogen but uh, you know, I think the reality, I think, just to be a bit conservative, is that lots more countries are going to be able to produce hydrogen from their own renewable resources than can, say, produce gas, because gas is a scarce resource relative to renewable energy. Uh, so that's not going to be actually that easy to exploit, to ex export hydrogen as we would like. But we can also say that uh, uh, imports are a negative export uh, uh, spoken like a, uh, an amateur economist, and uh, and if we get rid of oil imports and replace them with um, you know uh, electric vehicles and things, uh, that's going to save increase improve our current account and trade deficit in its own way pretty significantly. Well, absolutely. And look, you never know. We might even get around to making electric vehicles in Australia again. I mean, there's actually a bit of talk um, um, amongst Morgan Stanley and um, analysis. I just came across my desk um, a few hours ago, sort of talking about um, Tesla options to grow its Greek factories. And it mentions Australia. And I guess one of the reasons why it is mentioning Australia is those big price increases that we've seen in China and the fact that um, Australia might have sort of, you know, reasonably low cost um, green energy um, to build a manufacturing plant. Now, we don't know 
know if that's going to happen, but um, that's the sort of opportunities that you can actually sort of see happening. Absolutely. There's going to be lots of opportunities. And I've already mentioned there's heaps of opportunities in the behind the meter sector where Australia has, you know, a very competitive advantage because we do an awful lot of it and we've developed the whole industry. So in meters and software and, you know, in an inverter led uh, 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 grid, uh, the opportunities for software to actually run it and be developed and owned in Australia are fantastic. Uh, uh, but let's leave all that and, and move on to as not very much of the politics side of things. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how sick you are of hearing this technology, not taxes, uh, bullshit, but uh, I would like to rephrase it as how about a bit of policy, not bullshit, uh, as, a, as a slogan. Uh, and, and, you know, this has now been accompanied by this mythical modelling that apparently shows I don't know what it shows, but I did see your report today or Michael's report that the, was it the Labor Party, the Greens and Matt Canavan voted together on something in the, in the Senate. But isn't it just so typical of Angus Taylor that it's all got to be done in secret? You know, they can't do it out in the open. What, what, what is the problem with actually disclosing things and having them debated properly? If you compare the way Matt Keane does it, there's a model, there's policy papers put out, the seminars held, everyone gets to debate the issue. And there's broad agreement, whereas we've got this, I don't know what we've got. You, you tell me, what have we got federally? Well, with Matt Keane, we've got someone who sees the future and embraces it. And with the federal um, government, and be it Morris and Angus Taylor, um, most of the Liberals and the entire Nationals um, don't want to see the future and are just trying to avoid it. Um, you know, we're just seeing an extraordinary greenwashing and um but by greenwashing, I mean, you know, this whole thing about, oh, we might arrive at net zero by 2050. Well, great. That's probably the minimum that we should have been doing. We probably should have done that a couple of years ago. It would be a really useful signal for industry in general. But basically, all the climate scientists tell us and all the industries want is basically let's get things cracking in over the next 10 years because that's the important part. If we're going to get to net zero emissions by 2050, the last emissions are going to be the hardest to abate and there's an awful lot we can do quite easily and cheaply with the with the technologies we have now which is why the big business is going is why you see people like mike cannon brooks putting in one one and a half billion dollars to invest in more renewables lots of people seeing huge investment opportunities here huge returns except for the federal government and like you i just don't get it well, and I, I will say that if there is a commitment to 2050, and even if it's not legislated, and uh, you know, even if we and we will beat out the 2030 federal targets, thanks to various policies, most are state-owned, but some are actually old federal targets. If you if you look at the renewable energy scheme, it is, and the small scheme, they are both like John Howard era. Uh, uh, legislation, and they're actually pretty good legislation in their own way, but of course nothing's been done by the current government. But the point I was going to make is that if we have a 2050 target, then actually it does matter in corporate world because uh, then all those companies like coal companies and gas and oil companies that all have these undeveloped assets on their balance sheet and they have a value for those, and each year they're required to consider whether they should write them down or not. And in the past, there was no real basis for considering what would happen if, if there was net zero in 2050, because Australia didn't have any policy. But if we do have a policy, and if you happen to, say, follow the IEA scenario that said you don't need any more coal or gas assets to get to net zero by 2050, then all those companies and their auditors and their valuers have to, in one sense or another, take that into account. It doesn't really translate into all that much, but it, it, it's more 
than, than just the words uh, on the paper. And neither would I say that just because the IEA has a model that says that, that it's necessarily any more true than the IEA model that used to say we'd never have any more solar for about 10 years in a row. I mean, you can't... Yes. Uh, <laughs> diss them on one hand and support them the next day. You know what I mean? No, that's exactly right. And I do would like I, I would like to insert um, one um, reasonably responsible group in between John Howard and the current government. I think uh, John Howard did have a mo- renewable energy target in two thousand and one, which was then dismantled um, in uh, two thousand and six. In fact, it was actually a story uh, writing a story about that for the old Bulletin magazine that actually got me into writing about renewables and climate and. Um, and uh, and the energy transition, um, but uh, of course, most of the policies which are bringing to effect the renewables we have now were brought in by the Labor and the Greens. The current government sought to dismantle them, along with all the institutions that went with them, but um, couldn't quite do it. But um, um, there we go. Look, um, we talked about Matt Keane before. One of the initiatives of the uh, New South Wales government, apart from sort of drawing up a plan to replace coal, has been to encourage EVs. They finally got their tax through Parliament, this, um, their sort of their, their, their law through Parliament. So the probably the most generous rebates uh, or incentives for EVs in Australia is now in force and actually retrospective back to September the 1. That's a 3,000 rebate for a new vehicle, stamp duty exemption and the right to go along um, transit lanes. Another part of their uh, policy is turning all the Sydney buses electric over the next decade. They're going to have their first large-scale electric bus pilot plant or pilot facility at Leichhardt. It's going to be 40 buses. Now, the question is, you've got 40 electric buses there. When do you charge them? How do you charge them? What do you need to put into there? And um, there's an announcement between Transgrid and uh, Zenobi Energy, which is a UK battery company, um, was an an announcement made on Thursday about what they're doing there with solar and battery and fast chargers. And um, earlier today, I got to speak to Gareth Ridge, who's the country manager from Zenobi Energy, and um, here's what he had to say. Uh, Gareth Ridge, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. So the big announcement uh, this week was Australia's biggest electric bus depot is going to be installed in Leichhardt in Sydney. It's going to cater for 40 buses. These are going to be charged at night. And that, of course, um, imposes, well, just charging buses in the first place, imposes um, interesting challenges um, for the bus station and the network. And Zenobi has been brought in because you provide a battery storage and other sort of sophisticated software that um, enables you to manage this charging um, needs. Can you just explain exactly what your role is? Yeah, sure. Well, we're super excited to be announcing this project today. It's been in the making for the last almost two years. And essentially, Zenobi has joined forces with Transgrid to to bring together an end-to-end $40 million project, which will, as you quite rightly put, will be the largest single fleet of electric buses in Australia. Um, the, the project is um, it will be the most sustainably advanced and electrified depot in the country. And as you've, you've noted, some of the um, outputs is there'll be 40 battery electric buses, which will be a mix of DC and AC buses. Um, that means that there'll be a, a mix of charging types, so 31 AC chargers, 5 DC chargers. Okay, go, yeah. go on. Tell us what the difference is between an AC and a DC bus. Yeah, sure. So essentially it's the the power, well, the the type of charging technology that goes into the bus. So 
With an AC charging bus, we're basically limited to the amount of charge that you can get at the moment with the current technology, whereas DC charging, we're starting to see a lot faster charging speeds. So with that, we can start to get shorter charging times at the depot, uh, which means we can get more buses in subject to, to grid constraints. Okay. Now, you've got a whole bunch of electric bus charges, as you were about to say. You've got five 120 kilowatt hour, um, 120 kilowatt, sorry, electric bus charges. You've got mm-hmm. another 3180 kilowatt electric bus charges. Correct. And you've also got a very big battery, or reasonably big battery, 2.25 megawatts, 4.5 megawatt hours, and Correct. 387 kilowatts of rooftop solar. So the battery, it seems, is the one that plays the key role here. Yeah, exactly. So this, this project's really showcasing how... Zenobi and, and Transgrid can use this model, this innovative model that we've actually deployed in many depots across uh, the UK, where we, we couple it with a battery storage device to help both mitigate the, the grid upgrades required, but also to, to speed up the process and provide more grid stability for, for that site. The solar has also been put in place to maximise the amount of rooftop that they've got available and, and to try and get as much on-site uh, generation there and the, and the battery will actually be used to shift that solar out into the, the times when the, the buses will be back in the depot for charging. So will the buses charge at all during the day? In this model, most of the buses will be charged at night, but we are also exploring inter, inter-day uh, charging to see how that looks. Given this project's a, a knowledge-sharing project, which we can go into later, uh, there'll be a lot of learnings that we'll get out of that to see how the, char- the different charging profiles will work, coupled with how we use the battery through the day versus through the night. So my understanding is that the electric buses actually have enough charge in them to do their daily, um, their daily, their daily work and all their shifts, all their routes during the day, which is good news. Means that they don't have to sort of stop and do anything. They come back to the depot and it all slows down at night time. But there's certain times of the day or the evening at the peak demand that they really want to avoid, and this is where the battery comes in, isn't it? Correct. So. As you quite rightly put, the, ba- the buses will have you know at least four around four hundred kilometres of range, which is more than enough for for it to do the, the daily service. And when they come back, which some of the buses may come back within that peak demand window, we want to shift the the charging outside of that window to help uh, reduce the cost for the bus operator. And and that's where a battery really comes in because we you know we can actually improve that charging window without having to um, force buses to, to charge as soon as they get back into the into the depot. So does the battery allow you to actually charge the buses during that peak demand window, or are you just all the battery, you're actually just keeping it all in the battery so you're not sort of putting down coal power in the middle of the night? It depends really on, on how we see um, the charging strategy that we've done. So where we're at the moment, we're going to be pushing a lot of the charging into the night, but as we grow, and the great thing about a battery is it actually provides more scalability for the depot, which means we can actually in, in, um, lengthen that charging window into the, um, if we want, into that, that time frame, the, the peak demand uh, window, without actually uh, using that grid power. Right. So the battery is quite crucial because without that battery, and if you were sort of charging when they came straight back, they'd be charging at times of peak demand, which wouldn't be good for the grid, which would add stresses mm. and increase charges. But also the actual bus depot would be kicked out of the ballpark too with the charges that's imposed on it if it's drawing down correct. so much with all these buses plugged in. Correct. Right. Yeah, correct. And and it, it, as I think I mentioned, that it, it also an, an additional benefit is that it provides that backup power to the site as well. And as you can imagine, bus 
depots and, and buses as critical infrastructure need to, you know, we need to ensure that those buses are fully charged in the morning. And if there's, you know, an outage of, of some sorts, the battery provides that, that additional support. Okay. I'm just doing quick calculations. 4.5 megawatt hour of stationary battery doesn't sound quite enough to me to charge 40 buses overnight, or have I got something wrong here? No, that's correct. And, and that's the model that we've, we've used in the UK. It's actually a, a – we couple the, the design and the charging strategy with a mixture of grid um, draw plus, mm-hmm. plus the battery. So, okay. you know, we, we do have a grid connection and there's no point in, in not using that. So what we've done is we've, we've actually bolstered the grid connection, but we've, we've coupled that with a battery to get as much as we can um, out of that, that connection as possible. And that's important because, as we've seen, I think, with a lot of um, ultra-fast charging stations um, around the country, some of them want to be 250 kilowatt or 350 kilowatt. Some of them have been impeded because there isn't enough capacity on that part of the network to actually accommodate that. So a battery actually comes in useful. I know some of these ultra-fast charging stations are thinking about their own sort of co-located battery to sort of mitigate those circumstances. So this is exactly the same issue that you're seeing when you've got all 40 buses all in one spot with a whole bunch of fast chargers um, trying to charge it any one time exactly and, and you, you're seeing you know as as the buses come in there'll be a peak charging window when when you'll see all the buses back in the depot at night and and it's inevitable that there'll be a, a peak in this um charging window where the battery can be used to lop off that peak and, and essentially get us below what that grid um grid maximum or grid limit yeah. is yeah. So this is just for 40 buses. I think the plan for New South Wales is to actually have 8,000 buses. Um, sounds correct. to me like there's going to be a heck of a lot of batteries around the place. Yeah, correct. It's a, it's a huge, it's an ambitious um, but notable target that, that New South Wales has put forward. And we think this model, not only for the, for the battery storage, but the, um, the way that we've financed it that basically takes away all the upfront costs because there are some additional costs and, and we've done it in such a way that you know, operators and governments can actually transition quite quickly both de-risking it on a technology front, but also on a financial front. Now, you're taking a um, – you've got a fair bit of money from um, um, Arena, $5 million and about um, um, a loan from the CEFC. Is this I – mean, this has to work on a standalone basis. I mean, is, 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 I mean, is, this, is, is that funding needed because this is the first-of-its-kind project in Australia? Yeah, so it, that's exactly right. It will be made uh, fully commercial, and the purpose of, of this project or this pilot and, and why there's ARENA grant funding behind it is to validate the uh, assumptions that go behind making this a more efficient model than a diesel model. And some of the factors that go into that are how do we look at repurposing the batteries after life? That's one of the th- key things that Zenobi does in, in the UK projects, but what we're looking to do here in Australia is is take those bus batteries off the buses, repurpose them, and therefore reduce the total cost of ownership. Other efficiencies which we're looking to provide and show to the market are what are the the improved maintenance savings and how can we use that battery through the day for for trading or for ancillary support services so that, again, we can bank on that um, value so that the, the, the commercial model stacks up on its own right. So if you've got a four and a half megawatt hour battery for one station with 40 buses and there's going to be 8,000 buses of the 8,000 electric buses by the end of the decade mm. or even earlier, that's going to be a lot of battery storage um, around the uh, Sydney network, isn't it? Yes, well, it will and, 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 and it may not. And so, as I said at the outset, we do look at, you know, what, what is the grid connection at those sites? And as we get larger and larger um, 
battery, uh, sorry, bus sizes, we'll we'll start to look at potentially larger grid connections. But it's all it's always about there's an optimization of, of where you want how much you want to put that battery uh, or how much you want to size that battery to what's the maximum grid connection you can get without having any adverse um, impacts on the local network. Mm, okay, so uh, Zenobia understand has also got a hundred megawatt um, contract, and you might want to tell us what the megawatt hours was because everyone always wants to know from National Grid in the UK, and this is the largest battery installation of its type there. I understand. Can you explain exactly what uh, makes this battery so significant, and and why it might have a similar application in Australia? Yeah, sure. So just um, for, for the viewers or listeners, I should say, um, so Zenobi started out in, in the battery storage uh, market in, in 2017 and now we're one of the largest independent owners and operators of battery storage, um, we, in the UK that is. And so we, we have over 175 megawatts of either um, constructed or, or, or in operation uh, storage and, and as you um, quite rightly put out in, in April um, this year, we announced a 100 megawatt grid connected battery with National Grid, and it's 100 megawatt, 107 megawatt hours. Um, it's it's a world first in in the fact that we've won a long term contract with National Grid to provide them with reactive power services, and we've um, outcompeted a whole whole raft of different providers, including National Grid themselves, to provide this this service. So. What we're seeing is Zenobi is you know, starting to build a market-leading um, knowledge set of, of how we can provide batteries with both active frequency balancing, reserve power, et cetera, uh, and apparent power services to the market. And to, to answer your, your sort of last part of your question is how are we seeing this in Australia? Um, we're, we're now looking at some very large battery projects, grid-connected, both at the, the distribution and the transmission level, where we can see batteries playing a role, whether it's for um, uh, pushing out um, network augmentation or whether it's providing the, the same sorts of uh, network support services that we're, we're seeing in the UK. And you've talked a bit about sort of virtual transmission. Perhaps you can explain a bit what, what, what that means. Yeah, so, uh, well, I mean, virtual transmission, I mean, I'm not the, the battery expert, so I, I won't give it do it full justice, but... Essentially, we're able to provide a battery in, in lieu of um, doing a, a large transmission upgrade. So we're starting to see interest in that, both from the, in the Q&I um, upgrade, which you would know well about, uh, and also the, the V&I as well upgrade. And so we, um, I think there are public submissions on us uh, talking about the, the benefits of a virtual interconnector using a battery rather than a full-blown uh, physical hard interconnector. And how do the revenue streams look for all these different sort of, you know, um, sort of, I mean, you know, battery storage famously has new, a, a number of different sort of value stacks. How's mm-hmm. that rollout of batteries at the moment? Um, we, we're starting to get into the sort of the, the era of unsubsidized batteries. Can you sort of see that for the applications that you're looking at? Yes, we're getting extremely close. Um, you'll probably see some announcements about that soon, but we're we're starting to see the the contracts coming from networks to provide these network support arrangements, coupled with um, improved understanding of what the battery can do outside of those fixed network support services. So, what I'm talking about is you know playing in the FCAS markets or energy trading, and how we can 
maximize both of those revenue stacks and, and get quite a lot more confidence um, both to us and, and to our financiers that this actually does stack up on a, on a standalone basis. Mm. And just getting back to the electric bus um, deal that you've done with Transgrid in New South Wales, are you looking at similar opportunities in other states? Yes, we are. Uh, we're speaking across all states at the moment to different operators and public transport authorities about how we can actually support them through a similar model um, or if not the very same model where we can electrify large swathes of their fleet quite quickly and uh, de-risk it for them. So, yes, this, this project's, I, I would say, one of many coming. So it's not really a question or a problem about how to charge the bus. It's actually when to do it and making sure that that is actually compatible with the network that's in there at the place. So it's, it's, not, it's not really a sort of electric mobility problem. It's actually a network issue, isn't it? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things. There's you know, understanding the, the grid you know, issues, but what comes with that is having a very robust charging strategy and understanding of, of all the assets you're using. So you've got the buses, you've got the chargers, what's, what are the, the charging power, what is the, the, the window that you've got of opportunity to, to charge as well, what is the grid uh, limit, and what, what, what else have you got to use, i.e. a battery. And pulling that all together, which is what we do through our software, is how you can um, maximise and and um, work through those problems without having any uh, adverse impacts on that on the grid. Hmm. Well, Gareth Rich, um, thank you very much for joining us, and look, good luck. And we look forward to hearing more announcements from you in the future about um, more electric bus stations and um, maybe some bigger grid scale battery projects. Fantastic! Great to be on here. Thanks. So that was Gareth Ridge, the country manager for Zenobi Energy. Um, David, look, it's interesting stuff. Um, 40 buses at Leichhardt needs a four and a half megawatt hour battery to basically ensure that these buses don't get carried away and charge in the peak period in the evening. It can sort of store some of its solar energy, um, use it over the evening. They'll draw down some grid power, but basically it's to sort of strengthen the local grid um, because you've got a lot of buses, that's a lot of that's a lot of load all of a sudden in one place where the grid might not have expected it originally. So rather than having an upgrade of the grid, you put a battery in, and we can expect to see these batteries scattered all across the city and um, and other cities as well. Yes, uh, and you probably recall that um, uh, video interview I saw on YouTube where people went off to Shenzhen and had a look at uh, where they've uh, BYD largely has heavily uh, electrified the bus and taxi fleet, and in that process reconfigured all the bus depots to and you know provided uh, uh, places for for the for the bus drivers and the like to actually you know have change rooms or whatever change while the buses are actually charging and and you know you've got to configure your depots so that it all works properly with an electric system instead of a, a diesel system. Uh, also, only 120 megawatts, I think, was the mac- uh, kilowatts for the maximum charging. I mean, uh, your new Hyundai and Kia can do 350, but I guess with the buses, you, you, you're going to go steadily and on a schedule, so you don't need as much. Well, that's right. Yeah, they're just going to sit there, and probably about five or six hours will do them. So um, they're not going to get going much before five o'clock in the morning. So um, it's probably deliberately scaled in that way. And it was interesting to hear um, Gareth also just talking about um, they just put a hundred megawatt, hundred and six megawatt hour battery in the UK. They're one of the largest battery operators in the UK, and they, he reckons they're looking to do something similar in various spots around Australia. Um, just sort of battery stationed around the grid sort of acting as sort of virtual transmission 
Um, and we're just starting to see that sort of the increasing sort of value stack of batteries being recognized. So um, that is really interesting. David, I'm not too sure what else we've got on our menu today. Well, we could talk about uh, Carbon Tracker's new report about uh, how with a lot of the gas-fired generation investment that's on the books at the moment is going to be unprofitable. But let's save that for another time because I think we've taken up a lot of our listeners today and our, our sponsors would probably like to uh, us to give them uh, a bit of a mention too. I suppose so. Yeah, no, thank you very much to Evergen and Pylon for their ongoing support. Um, thanks to Gareth Ridge for appearing um, on our podcast um, today. Um, thanks to you, David, and um, everybody out there listening. Um, we do enjoy your feedback. Please send it through. Um, as mentioned before, more than 50,000 um, downloads in the month of September, which is very gratifying to hear that uh, we are well listened to as well being well regarded and, um, and we thoroughly enjoy doing this podcast. So. Charles, I, I, I think we, we hopeful of having uh, an interesting guest next week yes 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 um well i'm not i'm not i'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to predict who it is this time because i've done this a couple of times before and it's never actually quite worked out so look uh, a really good guest next week so um yes it should it should be great so looking forward to that one um and and very timely ahead of the um glasgow conference and uh, no it's not scott morrison and i don't think it's angus taylor either but still a really great guest Okay, that's all. Thank you very much, David. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for our sponsors. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.